The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Today, Beijing shut down parks and museums in the city as the capital of China faces its largest outbreak of COVID in six months. Authorities confirmed more than 28,000 cases yesterday and the first official COVID fatalities since May. Despite some recent adjustments, the Chinese government maintains the strictest COVID policy in the world. Lockdowns that restrict the movements of hundreds of millions of residents are sparking rare public dissent. People understand if I go protests, I can be harassed by the police, I can be detained or worse, I can be imprisoned for years. It happened to so many people and people understand that. But when, you know, the injustice is too much and for too long. Let's talk about diesel for a moment here, because growing concerns over the diesel and heating oil shortage in the U.S. as we head into the winter months is really weighing on markets, uh, certainly on investors' minds with U.S. stockpiles at new lows. And this is something that people have been warning about for a while, this shortage, which is only going to intensify in the months ahead. Give us a sense of how bad it's going to be. Yeah, right now, diesel inventories are the lowest ever for this time of year in the U.S., and it's, it's the worst on the East Coast, where we're most reliant on overseas imports. And what that means is that uh, residents in New England are paying 80% more for heating oil than they did this time last year. Because diesel is so deeply embedded in everything, and from manufacturing to transportation, we can expect expensive fuel to raise the cost of everything from a Thanksgiving turkey to electronics. And that's going to fuel inflation just when it seems to be getting a break from lower gasoline prices at the pump. So it's really everybody, everybody's going to feel it. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. U.S. markets saw a decent rally for the first few days of trading this week and then largely traded flat on Friday as investors digested not just their Thanksgiving meals for the Thursday holiday, but also this week's two largest events. Those were the release of the Fed's minutes and China's renewed lockdowns. Hi, everyone. I'm Chris Sheridan, host of our weekday FS Insider podcast, and here is a quick recap of what moved the markets this week. Minutes from the last Fed meeting showed that participants are more in favor of slowing the pace of tightening, and it is now widely expected that the Fed will raise rates by 50 basis points, or half a percent, instead of 75 at their next meeting in just a few weeks. Real-time measures also show inflation is continuing to decelerate across nearly every spending category. The one exception to that, however, is utility prices, as consumers feel the price shock from record-high natural gas, heating oil, and electricity prices. The second major event this week that is rattling investors and parts of the market is a surge in COVID cases in the world's second largest economy, China, which has led not only to more lockdowns, but swelling protests and violence throughout various parts of the country. Over the past month, it appeared as if China was finally going to take steps to move away from their strict zero-COVID policy, But with cases now skyrocketing this month to record levels, such hopes proved again to be premature. Coming up in today's program, Financial Sense NewsHour host Jim Paplava and Jim Welsh and Macro Tides discuss the short and long-term outlook for global markets when you consider the most powerful macro trends operating in the world today. 
Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, we are entering into that time of the year. The holiday season is upon us. Will we get that rally that takes us into the end of the year? And what goes beyond it? Joining us on the program from Macro Tides is Jim Welsh. And Jim, let's let's begin with some of the charts and the major indexes. We're doing this interview on a Tuesday. The markets are up. We're heading into the holidays, typically a seasonal time of the year when markets do well. What do you see coming ahead? Well, in the short term, I agree with the seasonality influence, Jim, uh, that the, you know the days leading up to Thanksgiving and then obviously the month of December, the Santa Claus rally, all should be supportive. The one point I would make is the supposition for this rally from the mid-October lows was the idea that, okay, the CPI came in less than expected, which I had written about extensively, you know, in effect saying, I think on November 10th, it's going to show a seven handle. The markets are going to rejoice, but it really doesn't change the trajectory of monetary policy. So to me, like the other rallies we've seen this year, the premise is that, oh, the Fed is going to do something than what the Fed has told us they're going to do. So, yes, I think the seasonal aspect of the market is going to be supportive. But I think as we get into the first half of next year, the market's going to have to face the reality that a recession next year is very, very likely. And what that then means for corporate earnings, which is not a positive. Yeah, because it's widely anticipated they'll raise interest rates 50 basis points on December. And they're projecting that they'll do it again in January, maybe a quarter of a point, slow it down a bit. The market might respond positively to that. Then you have March. They may do it a quarter of a point again. But at some point, Jim, you're going to get – we're not only having some of the supply issues. I was looking at getting a particular type tablet from Amazon, and they limited – the amount that I can have because they just don't have the chips and they don't have the supply. So a lot of these things are still going to be with us. So given the fact that the Fed is going in this direction, I'm not sure the market anticipates that. In other words, the the market is, as you mentioned, they responded positively to the seven handle on CPI, but I don't think CPI, you know, I don't think the Fed's going to get CPI down to 2%. I just don't see that happening. Well, I agree with you. Uh, again, it comes down to that. I think there's going to be a fair amount of progress in the first half of next year. A lot of that's due just to the numbers that are being taken off uh, from 2021. So from October 2021 to March of 2022, the takeaway values on the CPI are four and three quarters points. So if you only add 20 basis or 30 basis points uh, for each of those months, it means, you know, it's 475 minus plus a 180. So the CPI is going to come down a lot. I I think the hurdle, Jim, is that what the market is missing. Earlier this year, after the second quarter GDP came out and it was negative, 
everyone jumped to the conclusion that the economy was in a recession. Therefore, the Fed wouldn't have to raise rates as much and then would be bringing them down more quickly to offset the recession. And I pushed back against that narrative very hard because if you looked at the components that the uh, NBER uses, which is the arbiter of recessions beginning and end, uh, most of their sub-data um, beyond GDP were all positive through the second quarter. And my point was that people are assuming that we're in a recession. They're wrong. Uh, and the net result is the Fed doesn't believe we're in a recession either. And so what that means, the Fed is going to continue to raise rates and push. And I think Chair Powell in his Jackson Hole speech made that point clear. I will add second quarter or third quarter GDP was up 2.6. And the reading this week from the Atlanta Fed and their GDP now for the fourth quarter is plus 4.2%. So uh, I, again, those who thought we were in a recession were in effect, you know, expecting the Fed to react quickly were completely wrong. I think to your question, what they're missing is that the Fed is going to stop raising rates at some point in time in the early months of next year. But they're because they don't want to go too far and cause a recession, which of course is a, an about face, which is what happened in the 1970s. What they want to do is get it up to a restrictive level and then hold it there. And as the full weight of all the rate increases that to date take hold in the first half of next year, we're going to see, I think, a pretty sharp deceleration uh, in the economy. And that's what the street, I don't think, fully comprehends. Just because the Fed at some point in time will hit the pause button, it doesn't mean that monetary policy is easing. In fact, policy will continue to weigh on economic activity. And I think the odds are we're going to see uh, a recession by the middle of next year. I want to talk about something that the markets, financial advisors are dealing with, because Jim, for almost my entire career, we had this 60-40 split, 60% stocks, 40% in bonds, and that served you well in bear markets. It served you well in 2007 and eight. It served you well in 2000 to 2002, uh, 1991. That worked. This year, it did not work. If you were in bonds, bonds were down more than 20%. Stocks were down more than 20%. Let's address that because we're entering in, in my opinion, a new macro environment that's going to be negative for equities for quite some time. No, it's a, you're spot on, Jim. The reality is over the last 20 years, the relationship of bonds to stocks were inverted. In other words, as the market went down, bonds rallied and went up in value. So that provided the ballast to a diversified portfolio. The opposite have happened this year. Both buckets are down a lot. And the thing, again, I think Wall Street has consistently misread the Fed uh, this year. But the other thing, looking back the last 20 years, inflation was near 2%, the Fed's target for almost all that period of time. Now, all of a sudden, we're in an environment much like 1966-67, when inflation broke out significantly above 2.5%, and it was a whole new ballgame. And in that environment, bond prices and stock prices went up and down together. And I think that's likely to persist in coming years. So the traditional 60-40 had a terrible year this year. But to your point, I think it's going to continue to be challenging in coming years, because the odds are 
uh, bonds aren't going to act inversely to the stock market. And therefore, you know, a 60-40 portfolio will get you diversified and it's going to generate diversified losses, which is not really satisfying. You know, Jim, I've run dividend screens on my Bloomberg and I would say two years ago, I had 30, 40 stocks to choose from. Then it slimmed down to 20 uh, last year. This year, I'm down to 10. So let's talk about market valuations in the Case-Shiller P.E. ratio, which is, I think, in your newsletter, I think as of October, it was 27. Let's talk about the implications for that going forward. Well, the point I tried to make in this piece uh, regarding is the secular bear market coming, I believe it is, is that you go from very, very cheap valuations. And in 1982, for instance, the average P.E. was under eight. So that meant a company that made a dollar sold for $8. And now company makes a buck, it's selling for 27. So psychology and outlook play a huge role in this. And the net result is that after every secular bull market in the last 140 years has been followed by a secular bear market in which valuations slowly adjust downward until they get to that cheap level. So I think we're entering a window time based on history and a lot of things I discussed in that piece that uh, valuations are still way too high despite the decline that we've seen uh, and uh, are headed to a much lower level. It's going to take 10 to 15 years for this process to work its way through just like the 1966 to 1982 time period took a long time. We've got some big problems that we're facing, and they're not going to be resolved quickly. And that's part of what happens during a secular bear market. Things that excesses, issues that were kind of ignored during the secular bull, then are kind of come to the forefront and must be dealt with. And usually the solutions that are needed and required aren't great for economic activity and aren't great for stocks. You know, this is, I want to get back to the Fed when inflation first began to surface. They were calling this transitory because this is something the Fed had not had to deal with for the last 40 years, nor investors. Now, Jim, we've got this inflationary environment that we're dealing with, I think is going to be with us in a long time. In a recent newsletter, you have a chart that I've used in the past, and that shows the 1966 to 1982 markets. And it showed that we'd have these kind of quick, short bull markets followed by long extended bear markets, the most notorious being the 74, 73, 74 bear market, which lasted 23 months. Let's talk about that because I, I see more of that unfolding, maybe even a bit worse going forward. Yeah. During that window of time from 66 to 82, Inflation kept ramping higher. In other words, during each economic expansion, inflation hit a higher level. And part of that was due to the way monetary policy was conducted. Starting in 1968, 69, into 70, uh, as inflation started to break out and ramp higher, the Fed really jammed on the brakes. And it led to a recession in 1970, which then forced the Fed to reduce rates in order to offset the recession. And that kept being played out. As you mentioned, in 1973, 74, uh, the market was down almost 50% over a two-year window of time. Um, and 
I think something similar like you is likely to happen during the next 10 to 15 years where we see big rallies followed by maybe potentially even larger decline. And the message that I think, again, the secular bear market concept provides is during a bull market, a secular bull market, buy and hold is fabulously rewarded because the market just keeps hitting higher highs. Even though you may experience a bear market during a secular bull market, if you look at where the Dow was in 1982, it was under 800. So um, the, the point being is that the, uh, the tools and the approach that most financial advisors and investors are using of buying and holding worked great in the secular bull market that we've been in for most of the, you know, since 1982, certainly from 2009. So the point being is that if you look at history, you look at what happened between 66 and 82, one needs to incorporate a more tactical approach, not for a whole portfolio, but there should be a sleeve within a portfolio that's allocated to the idea of catching the market as it um, makes, if you will, a cyclical low, and then enjoy some of the big rallies that you saw during the 66, 82 time period. And more importantly, then taking that tactical sleeve to cash uh, when those rallies are over so you can avoid um, you know, what subsequently happens during a secular bear market. Uh, again, the key to me is for a lot of people in their 40s and obviously 50s, you, you know, you can say, well, 15-year market didn't do anything. But if you went from being, you know, 50 to 65 and your portfolio didn't really increase in value, that's a big deal. And I just think most uh, advisors and investors are just not equipped with the tools they need to circumvent this kind of an environment that I think we're headed into. You know, and I just want to point out as we're talking about what this might unfold over the next 15 years, Jim, remember what the markets were like from 2000 to 2013. So you, yep. the markets were down over 50% from 2000 to 2002. We rallied back up to 2007. And then the markets went down 60%. So it wasn't till I think it was April of 2013, if I recall the date, that you finally broke even and surpassed the previous uh, levels of where we were in the market. So there was a 13-year period yep. where you went nowhere, and your only return that you got was the dividends you got from stocks. That was it. Yep, yep. Uh, that was kind of like a mini secular bear market. Um, I think we're on the same page in terms of if you look at uh, the monetary and fiscal tools that were used to offset what happened in 2009 and uh, to a lesser extent, the recession in 2001 into that low of uh, 2002 and three, and obviously in response to the pandemic, the monetary and fiscal tools that were used to improve the economy and obviously greatly benefit the stock market. I think those tools uh, have been reduced in terms of their impact. If you look at things like the velocity of money, uh, what it shows is even though uh, you know money supply increased, economic activity has been slower going back to like 1995. So this is a long-term issue. Debt, for every new $1 of new debt in the 1960s, it added about 90 cents uh, to GDP growth. In the last decade, it's less than 50 cents. 
What does that mean? It means that debt then is growing faster than GDP, and that's unsustainable. So for those reasons, uh, uh, those are just a couple of the reasons why I think this coming secular bar market is going to be more difficult because the policy tools that have been used uh, in the last 40, 50 years to address recession and so forth, I just don't, I think they've lost a great deal of their effectiveness. Doesn't mean they aren't going to try them and try to use them to do something, but I just don't think the economic impact will be what it has been over the last 30, 40 years. Let's talk about something that's occurring because when interest rates were brought down, it's hard to believe we began the year with 10-year treasuries at roughly about half a percent. But during this downturn over the last couple of years, when interest rates were really brought down low, consumers were smart. They refinanced their home, corporations refinanced their debt. But the only people that weren't smart, in my opinion, was the government. They were issuing all their debt short-term. Why not? If you issued a three-month T-bill, you were paying only 10 basis points. So you, even though debt was skyrocketing, their interest costs weren't. Now that situation has changed, Jim. Let's talk about that because you're talking about almost a third of the treasury debt that's going to be rolling over and they're going to go from one-tenth of a percent. They're going to be going to 4% or even more. Let's talk about the implications because we're tracking right now at close to $800 billion in just interest. Right. So, you know, you describe it really well, Jim, in the sense that this mountain of debt that's out there, rather than issuing 20 and 30 year bonds when bond yields were, you know, generationally at lows, uh, they didn't do that. And now with monetary policy uh, addressing inflation with higher interest rates, as one third of the debt comes due, they're going to be replacing that with, even if you look at T-bills, instead of at 10 to 15 basis points uh, a couple of years ago, we're closer to 4% and higher. So what it means is as interest as a, as a percent of GDP and of the budget continues to increase over the next five to 10 years, that money is just used to service the debt of the government, as opposed to other government programs that are uh, you know, providing income transfers to people, military spending that actually contribute to GDP growth. So as interest expense increases over the next five to 10 years, it's just, again, it, the economy's losing one of the stimulating factors that have been helpful for a long, long time. And the net result is other programs are gonna have to either be squeezed to some extent to address this, or taxes are going to have to be increased to try to narrow the gap between income transfer programs relative to just servicing the debt. So again, when, for me, all this stuff adds up to slower GDP growth, not just over the next five or 10 years, but really probably over the next 10 to 20 years, especially when one looks at the demographics within this country. You know, as you, you look at this going forward, too, and I want to bring up a book that you and I were talking about before we went on the air, and that was The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Howe. And you can you can see it taking place. I mean, just take a look at the geopolitical eruptions that we're seeing. I don't care if it's what's going on in the Middle East, Ukraine, the South China Seas, North Korea, all the way around the globe. You're seeing all this. Take a look at what's going on in Europe. And even in Brazil, 
with people just rising up and riding in the streets. I mean, this is something, Jim, we probably have to go back to the 60s when we saw something like this. Yes, although I don't know that it was uh, as much of a global phenomena back in the 60s. We were very aware of it in terms of the Vietnam War and how that uh, played out uh, You know, every evening on the evening news. No, again, I think when you go through an extended period where economic growth slows, you're going to have in a lot of developing countries, people on the border of starvation. And that's what I think we're going to see. It means more unrest around the world. And I think in this country, we've seen it firsthand. I mean, normally one would think a pandemic uh, that knows no boundaries in terms of uh, somebody's economic situation, their race, their religion. Um, normally something like that we would think would bring us together. Instead, it, it divided us even more. And that to me is one of the aspects of this secular bear market. Uh, the same thing happened in the 30s and 40s as the re- depression took hold and then uh, World War II. Everybody came together to do what was right, if you will, for the country. I mean, there was disagreements, no question about it. Uh, We're at the polar opposite at this point in time. And so to me, that is one of the problems that needs to be addressed. If we have uh, fiscal debt too high, uh, economic growth is going to be slow, the demographics aren't great uh, to support growth, somehow we have to come together. And I think that is going to mean that addressing the problems that we're facing is going to take longer. In other words, people are going to have to be desperate almost to say, you know what, I have this view, you have that view, but really counts is putting, you know, food on the table and being able to go to work uh, at a, you know, at at a job. So um, all of that ties in to that 80 year cycle that those guys referenced. And for me, because I read that book years ago, it was written in 1997, um, seeing what's happened on all these different fronts has made me believe that we are entering the crisis phase of the crisis phase over the next five to 10 years. And it's going to be incredibly challenging uh, and difficult. And again, it just underscores what I've said here before. Most investors aren't equipped They haven't had to learn uh, a tactical approach uh, to manage the kind of volatility that is likely to be seen in the next five to 10 years. I think the 1966-82 provides us kind of a a playbook of what we can likely uh, expect. So I just think on so many levels, Jim, I think the probabilities of a secular bear market developing, if it hasn't already begun, uh, are really, really high. Um, and I think given the, what you discuss on these shows with the various guests that you have, I think you're providing, uh, you know, a real service to people, hopefully to open their eyes, uh, and maybe decide to make some changes in terms of how they approach financial markets. Yeah. I, I just think it's, it's something, you know, if you take a look at the last 30, 40 years, we had these 10 year cycles, 20 year cycles where everything went up. You think of, the financial markets from 1980 to 2000, and then that 13-year period that we just talked about. But if you take a look at the last decade, you had 10 years where the market just went up every single year. But then take a look at, Jim, what we've gone through. It began with the pandemic uh, at the end of 2019. 
We went into lockdowns. We came out of the pandemic. Now we've got a war in Ukraine. So you could almost see this fourth turning taking place, not only just domestically here, but globally from the events that we've gone through. No, you're 100% right. And uh, I think we have to, one thing I'll I'll note, uh, I think last month, the Biden administration basically uh, said, we're not going to send the technology to China so they can make advanced uh, computer chips. And, you know, we're making a big effort to develop more production of computer chips in the United States. It's going to take a number of years. But in thinking about that in terms of China um, and some of the challenges they're facing, uh, but if you're kneecapped by not having a technology that you know you need for your military and everything else, to me, that comes into the timetable of potentially China going after Taiwan sooner rather than what maybe China was thinking about. I mean, I I do believe China has the intent to take Taiwan. Um, But that act, uh, I think, potentially, uh, you know, speeds up the time frame when China might do that. So that is another factor that plays into exactly what you're talking about, uh, is the era of more actual conflict and hostilities between nations um, and obviously, given the weaponry that exists today, um, you know, it doesn't take long to be able to kind of foresee a very dark environment for the global economy and obviously for financial markets. So, uh, as I said earlier, I think this secular bear market is going to be worse than the 13 year bear market, if you will, from 2000 to 2013. And I think potentially worse than the 1966 to 1982 in part because of what you just noted in terms of what's happening geopolitically around the world. Yeah, because uh, we did a show last week where we talked about three big macro forces that are going to keep inflation elevated. Number one is fiscal policy. I mean, just I think the Biden administration increased, I think it's about $4.5 trillion of new spending programs. That's number one. Second is energy and, you know, I don't care if it's natural gas or it's even diesel fuel, like they're looking at pad one on the East Coast. And then the third is deglobalization, which you touched upon in your yep. newsletter. If you bring factories back here, it's going to cost more to make chips here than it is in China. Yep. And that gets back to the the labor market. You know, Paul has talked about the tightness in the labor market. And uh, what I've written about and discussed is if you look at the labor participation rate, it peaked back in 2001. So it's been trending down for more than 20 years. Granted, the pandemic exacerbated that trend, but given that trend, I don't see, other than you know, really uh, changing our approach to immigration, I, I don't see the labor market easing up enough. And what that means is wage growth remains at a higher level than it otherwise would. That in other words, we're dealing with a chronic problem with the labor market. And in terms of oil, I've discussed that too, in terms of if you look in the 1970s when oil prices went nuts, U.S. oil companies increased their exploration budgets by 500%. The net result is they brought more oil online. Oil went from around $39 to under 10 bucks by the mid-80s. And the same thing happened with the shale revolution from 2006 
into about 2014 when it really hit critical mass. Oil prices dropped from over 100 bucks to under 60 and then stayed under 60 for an extended period of time. So given the, the way we're managing the energy sector this time around, Jim, you know, to me, it just says, hey, energy costs are going to remain high because we're basically handcuffing oil companies, in a sense, encouraging them not to invest and create more gas and oil for consumption in the United States and globally. So I agree that those factors are likely to sustain inflation at a higher level. And there's very little that monetary policy can do. You know, raising interest rates aren't going to create more workers and not going to create more oil wells. And the globalization retreat that we've been in really for almost a decade, I think accelerates. Because when you're in an environment where globally growth is slowing, people begin to look inward, not outward. And they begin to protect what they have more than trying to increase the pie. So all these factors are coming together, which supports the idea that we're on the cusp of the crisis within the crisis phase of the fourth turning. Jim, as we close, how can our listeners follow more of the work that you do? Once again, I appreciate being on your show. I love having these kind of deep dive conversations. Uh, You and I spent a lot of time during our conversation talking about the uh, coming secular bear market. You were nice enough to reference a piece that I wrote called The Coming Secular Bear Market. If listeners would like to receive a copy of that, I'd be happy to send it. All they need to do is send me an email, jimwelshmacro at gmail, and I'll get that off to them. And again, thanks again, Jim. Always enjoy being a guest. Well, as Jim and I have been talking here, it's going to be a tough decade. It's going to probably look, as we mentioned, somewhat between the 1966 and 1982 period, maybe a little rougher. And so as we've talked about, the old 60-40 split in passive investing is not going to work in this decade. You're going to have to be more inflation-protected oriented, whether you're in inflationary stocks, and it's going to be more volatile. So we may have brief periods where we have bull markets and then longer bear markets. And just think about the OO decade, what followed it. As we mentioned, we began with the bursting of the tech bubble, and it wasn't until 2013 that you actually got even. So as Jim and I have been talking about, this 15-year cycle, uh, we're more likely to see it again, which means you need to get more active and you need to get more defensive. And most importantly, you need to protect yourself from an inflationary wave that's going to be with us for some time, at least this decade, that could play out. Well, as we close out today's show, please remember to spread the word about Financial Sense News Hour with your friends and family. As always, today's podcast is brought to you by Financial Sense Wealth Management, which has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. If you have any questions about our asset management or our financial planning services. Feel free to click where it says contact us on financialsense.com, or you can also call us directly at 888-486-3939. In the meantime, on behalf of Chris Sheridan and myself, we'd like to thank you for tuning in to the Financial Sense News Hour. Until we talk again, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. 
Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk. <laughs> 